When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jay Moore. And I liked it so much that I would do it to him, and I didn't like doing it to him. It tasted like pennies. (laughs) (laughs) That and more, but before that, let me just say, you've probably heard the cost of a stamp just went up to 49 cents, but not if you have Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you pay less for postage than you would at the post office for first-class mail, priority and priority express mail packages, and more. Stamps.com is easy to use and convenient. You can buy and print discounted stamps, shipping labels, and more using your own computer and printer. Not only will you save money with Stamps.com by not paying full price for postage, you'll save valuable time, too. Stamps.com always keeps the rates up to date, so you'll get the exact postage you need every time right from your desk you'll never go to the post office again we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it right now use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes digital scale and up to fifty five dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Jonathan Gear behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number five. This is the fifth time we're sharing a best of compilation. I'll tell you, it's so hard to put these compilations together because there's so many amazing stories and because... So many of our very favorite stories are just too long to put in a compilation episode. And yet, I feel we put a hell of a show together for this episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear my good friend and fellow kinkster extraordinaire, the artist Nayland Blake. But before that, we're going to hear from Kitty Haley. She told this story at one of our shows in Philadelphia. Kitty spent decades... As a private detective, a fact that this story in no way touches upon. It's it's completely irrelevant, but I just love that about her. Here she is now at this year's Risk Live show in Philly. It's Kitty Haley with a story we call It's All Happening at the Zoo.
I met John on South Street at a coffee shop, and it was, it was love at first sight. Who wouldn't fall in love with a guy who looked like a tall Willie Nelson? He had on a motorcycle helmet, there was a BMW K1100 at the curb, and he was reading the New York Times. I mean, that was pretty cool. I was, it was wonderful. And, and it was strange, because I had already had two failed marriages. The first one because, well, I guess I was just too young. And the second one, well, he kind of liked women. Unfortunately, lots of them, and he was still married to me. So that didn't last. And I had made up my mind by then that this was it. I was never going to fall in love again. I was done. I would never marry again. I might never have sex again. I was sure that it was all over for me. And then I met John. We went on one date, one date. And I gave him the key to my house. And I gave him the key to my heart. And we were inseparable from that moment on. It was, it was wonderful. I had two and a half of the best years of my entire life. I never thought that at my advanced age, because I was older, I was the cougar, not a pedophile. He was only a little bit young. <laughs> he was under 50, I was over, and all of a sudden, life was special again. I did things I never thought I would do again. I mean, sex was like, wow, eat your heart out, Miley Cyrus. I mean, serious. <laughs> it gets better when you get older. Just take my word for it, okay. And I was really a happy person, and he gave me two and a half wonderful, wonderful years. And then something happened, and it was weird and strange and I never thought anything like this could occur, but on his 50th birthday, things started to change. He started to forget things. At first, it was little. He forgot, where's, where's John's water ice? Well, that's only three blocks away. And then he couldn't dial the telephone. He couldn't remember how to dial the telephone, and he couldn't remember how to buckle his belt. And he was an architect. And, and he couldn't remember why the lines started here and ended here. And it was difficult for me to wrap my head around and for him. We had him diagnosed and he had a, a very strange form of dementia. If you're aware of Alzheimer's, you know that Alzheimer's is this thing back here. It deals with memory of the past my John had frontal temporal dementia. Frontal temporal, okay? He was forgetting the present. He was like a videotape of life that was rolling backwards in time. But it wasn't rolling slowly, it was rolling rapidly. Within the first six months, he lost 10, 20 years of his life. And he started forgetting how to do things, how to how to do everything. His palate changed. He went from the man who loved gourmet food. He liked pate. He liked 
Pad Thai. He liked anything that was wonderful and luscious and exotic, and now he liked peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, and ice cream. And I couldn't believe that everything was rolling backwards, and it, it seemed to accelerate. What had happened was there were literally holes in his brain that were being caused by like a plaque that caused the synapses to separate. So he couldn't get those thoughts together. The electrical charges weren't there. And eventually he even forgot how to speak. And instead of being my love and my husband, he became my little boy and I became mommy. Now, I loved being mommy, okay? Being mommy was the best part of my life up until the time that I met John. So I loved, loved being a mother. And he was the best little boy in the whole world, except he was six foot three. And it was a little difficult to deal with a six foot three inch tall little boy who was frustrated and couldn't always speak and couldn't say what he wanted all the time. But he was my John, and he had given me so much in that short period of time that I knew I had to give back to him, and I had to take care of him. And that was easy, because we had a wonderful time. We drew pictures together. He colored them in and painted them. We just loved life. Except one morning, in October, I realized that if I had to watch Finding Nemo one more time, I was going to shoot myself, okay? I couldn't do it. And I thought, what would I do with my kids? Let's see, he must be, he's about seven now, maybe six. Johnny, let's go to the zoo. And by then, he had almost lost his ability to talk, but he remembered a little bit, and, and he kept walking around the house going, zoo, zoo, zoo. And so I knew I made him happy. And by then, he really was my little boy. And I mean, he was in diapers. It was difficult. But I knew I had found something that we could both do. So it was a Wednesday morning. It was in October. It was the middle of the week. And the kids were back at school. This would be a perfect day to go to the zoo. I was really ready for this. This was really important because I was going to make him happy and I didn't have to watch that damn movie anymore. Okay, so I'm a happy lady now, all right? Life is good. And I say, Johnny, let's make sandwiches together. So we make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and he spreads the jelly all over the place and he puts the peanut butter on it, and I hold his hand, and I say, how do you want to cut them today? Do you want triangles? He goes, no, no. I said, well, do you want squares? No. Okay. Fingers. You want four fingers? Yes, fingers. So I held his hand, and we cut fingers, and we wrapped each little finger soldier in plastic wrap, and we put it in a paper bag. I had drawn a picture of a fish on the paper bag. He liked fish. And he colored it in, and I wrote John on it, and he was really happy. He had his lunch bag. And, and we get to the car, and, you know, I did what moms do. I helped my little boy man put his seatbelt on, and then I talked to him, 
And I said things like, John, when we go to the zoo, don't walk away from me. Hold my hand. Don't run. And stay with me. And if we get separated, you just stand still because you're so big, I'll find you. Okay? Don't go anywhere. Just be there. And he was, okay, okay. Zoo. And we get close to the zoo, and I'm fine. This is great. Except that as we pull close to the zoo, I realize there are 900 yellow school buses in front of the gate. And there are children pouring out of the school buses. And my John doesn't take sensory input too well. So screaming, yelling children is not what he needed to hear at that particular moment. And I was afraid. And I said, John, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. But it was too late. We couldn't turn around and leave. He had already seen the zoo. And he was out of the car, running across the parking lot. So I put it into the brake on. I locked the door. I ran after him. I grabbed his hand. And my little man, big man, dragged me through the gate, through the turnstile. I really was surprised when they didn't charge me for a child. But they charged me for two adults, and we went inside. Now, we get in the zoo, and I look around, and it's too late for me to look around. He's already moving, and his six-foot-three-inch legs are pulling me, and we go to the first animal. And the first animal is a rhinoceros. And there are all these little school children looking at the rhinoceros and pointing and going, ooh, look, he's got five legs. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he, he did have five legs, sort of. And I'm holding John's hand, and of course, he's way above the other children, and he sees what they're looking at, and he kind of, um, he kind of reaches down, and he's looking for his other leg. And I realized that's kind of nice. He remembers he's got one because he had forgotten for a while there. <laughs> and then I thought, oh no, no, this big man is fondling himself in front of a group of children. This is not good. Okay, John, let's go see the next animal. And so I start dragging him. And we go, and there's a zebra. And there's a group of children around the zebra. And oh my God, the zebra has five. <laughs> and the children are looking at the zebra going, oh, look at that. <gasps> He's peeing through his leg. Oh, my God. And the little boys are giggling, and the little girls are giggling, and they're whispering to each other. And I'm holding John's hand, and I realize that he's thinking about this whole fifth leg thing, and his hand goes down to himself again, and he's feeling his manhood, and the children are yelling, and I'm getting a little worried, especially when I feel an electrical charge going through my body coming from his. He's starting to shake a little bit. He's starting to be upset by the kids, and I can feel this electricity going from his body into mine. And I know this is my time to move. We have to get out of there. And so I drag him across the path, 
And I remember there are giant turtles. And so we head towards the giant turtles, and I'm going, come on, John, we're going to go see the turtles. You love turtles. Turtles are big. And there's this group of kids, they must be five or six or maybe seven, and a young teacher, she can't be more than 25 years old, and they're looking at the turtles. And as we get close, I hear these little voices going, Oh, he's going to hurt him. He's going to hurt him. Don't let him climb on top of him, Mrs. Thompson. He's going to hurt him. The big one is too big. He's going to crush the little one. And by then, my John is really getting it. And he's starting to put things together. And those synapses are starting to connect. And I'm holding his hand, and I feel Mount Vesuvius about to erupt and he starts to shake and my body shakes and at the top of his 53 year old lungs he yells no and everybody jumps back and the teacher looks at us like what's going on and he finishes his sentence no He's not hurting him, they're fucking. <laughs> Mrs. Thompson was upset. She looked at me like, why can't you control that man? The children by then were going, did you hear what he said? And I was about ready to bust a gut. I grabbed his hand and I said, Johnny, let's run. And we did. I grabbed his hand and we ran all the way to the other end of the zoo, all the way to the other end, away from these people who were pointing at us now. And I I caught my breath, and I was laughing and gasping for breath. And Johnny was so proud of himself because he had put together a thought, and he had put together a word, and he might have even put together a memory because we sat on a bench together in this peaceful contentment. We unwrapped each little finger of peanut butter and jelly sandwich, each little soldier, and we nibbled our sandwiches, and we sat there watching the lions, who were doing what else? They were fucking. <laughs> I have been called in the past a gnome fondler. And that is because one of the type of men that I find incredibly attractive are guys who are small and have beards. If they're generally hairy, that's great. But it's something about, um, you know, compact, um, compact guys with beards. Very, very hot for me. So once a year I go to a gathering of kinky men at a campground 
on the East Coast. And over the years, there are a couple of people that I have developed pretty strong relationships with. And I met this guy at this event years ago and was immediately attracted to him, to the point of being tongue-tied, actually. My jaw was just kind of on the ground, and luckily my friend, who had invited me to the event in the first place, came to my rescue by sort of swanning over and going, Oh, Naylan, you should meet this guy. And, like, forcing us to talk to each other. So I got past my sort of terminal shyness enough to ask this guy for a play date. And we had a fantastic time. He was very physically rough with me, and we did a whole batch of things. At the end of which, I said one of the silliest things that I've ever said, which is, you know you can be meaner to me. I said that, you know, just to reassure him that he hadn't been too rough and that I liked what he had been doing and that I could take it. Little did I know that he's an attorney and one of the things he does is take depositions. So I didn't put it together at that point that anything that I said to him was being filed away for future reference. And is very happy to construct elaborate plots. So, we played at that event. We sort of were in touch with each other over the year. We live in different parts of the country, so we didn't get a chance to see each other very much. We saw each other a little bit. And the next year, we're at the campground, and a guy that I don't know walks up to me and hands me a blue folder. Inside of the folder is a legal document that is a summons to appear before the Nome Tribunal to answer for my crimes. So I'm supposed to go to the camp's gazebo after 8 p.m. I'm allowed to bring a character witness. So I enroll one of my friends And around 7.30, we set off. And we noticed that the path to the gazebo has tiny mushrooms with little LED lights marking the way. So we very carefully go along the path and we enter the gazebo, which is dark until someone turns on a miner's headlamp. And it is the guy who summoned me there dressed as a gnome. Then other people emerge from out of the shadows, and it's a bunch of other guys also dressed as gnomes. And what happens next is a kind of kangaroo court where I'm presented with drawings that I had made and emails that I had written, things that I had posted online all sort of called in evidence of how I had exploited gnomes and how I was a a gnome predator. And throughout this entire interrogation, there's an ongoing commentary from the gnome peanut gallery. This is terrible! This is terrible! This is the worst thing that has ever happened to gnome kind! He must be punished! He must be punished! Yes, yes, he must be! (laughs) 
And then it got onto some weird thing about glow pops. It was like somebody had glow pops and was like, do you want another blow pop? No, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> no, but it is true that, that gnomes need blow pops. <laughs> The trial sort of goes on and on and on. I'm sort of trying to defend myself, being confronted with all this very official evidence. You know, I had had a picture of myself online wearing a shirt that said Gnome Fondler on it. it like, I took it very seriously. Like, I was accused of exploiting gnomes by drawing erotic images of gnomes. And I explained that that was not exploitation, but that it was actually a celebration of gnome sexuality that they were drawn from my imagination. They weren't drawn from any particular gnomes. But then that was being contradicted by the other witnesses who were going like, that looks just like Stanley, Stanley gnome. Where is he now? We don't know where he is. Ever since he posed for you, he's disappeared. What have you done with him? So. <laughs> Finally, I'm offered a way out. And the way out is that I have to roll dice to determine numbers and those numbers will indicate the extent of my various punishments these punishments are going to be carried out at one of the events dungeons so myself my character witness who had fled for a moment when he was thought that he was going to have to endure some of these punishments but who returned and a group of six men dressed as gnomes march up to the dungeon at this very serious leather event where people are being suspended and people are being flogged and treated with electrical equipment and beaten. And, and we all sort of walk in the door of this dungeon and silence falls and every head sort of turns to look at us. <laughs> And we see that there isn't really any room in that dungeon for me to be punished properly. So we leave, and then I am frog-marched down to another sort of smaller dungeon where there is room. And sentence is carried out. And I realized that one of the numbers that I rolled was for the number of clothespins that were going to be placed on my body. And... Another number was the number of times I was going to be hit with a single tail and asked to count off the times I was being hit. And I started, and then it stopped, and I heard this voice that said, No, count it like a gnome! So I had to go back and recount, like, one, two, three... And luckily, I was blindfolded at that point because my guy told me afterwards that he was collapsing in laughter at the point that that was happening and, like, could barely get it together to hit me. <laughs> and then I'm forced to sign a confession and... There's a sort of strange craft interlude where I'm given a bunch of newspaper and I'm asked to, like, make things out of it, like a pair of peaked shoes and a conical cap out of newspaper and an odd pipe. 
and I'm sort of tied up into a position and these things are sort of placed on me and a picture is taken and then there's more poking and prodding and tickling and all the while that this is going on there's this sort of ongoing chorus of gnome voices calling for justice and calling for reparations and finally I'm at the breaking point the psychology of the interrogation and the physical sensation of the punishment was completely serious and that was one of the things that was really powerful about the whole experience is that it was play in the best sense it was this thing that at one moment was completely hilarious and at another moment was completely flat out serious and i'm utterly wiped out and my passport to the gnome kingdom is presented to me and properly stamped and i'm shown one of the pictures that was taken of me which is basically me in the position of a drawing of a gnome that i had done years before that i had included in an exhibition so that drawing was sort of recreated with me in the gnome role and as we sort of wrap up and people are getting me water and we're sort of being talked down to it i come to this point of realization that this guy has done an enormous amount of research over the previous year and he reminded me that I said he could be meaner to me and I had said believe me that's completely mean enough <laughs> but in the midst of all of that I felt an incredible humility that someone had gone to all of that trouble to know me that thoroughly and that this thing that presents itself as a kind of torture was actually the most amazing act of attention that I had ever received risk this is beach house behind me now and we just heard from the artist nayland blake who you can find at naylandblake.net and in just a bit 
We will be hearing from the remarkable author Janine Latis. But first, we're going to hear from comedian Jay Moore. Now, Jay told this story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We do that once a month, every fourth Thursday at the Nerdmount Theater. On that same date, every fourth Thursday, we're at the Pit in New York City as well. And we're always touring around, too. So be sure to check out risk-show.com slash tour to find out when our next live show is. Anyway, without further ado, here he is at the Risk Live Show in Los Angeles. This is Jay Moore with a story we call Summer Lovin'. I have uh, two boys at home. One of them might be gay. I'm just gonna tell you straight up. <laughs> it's questionable. If you have a kid between the age of two and 14, waiting list the whole way. I'm not, you don't know. Cause when they're with their buddies, everything's gay. Like you wrestle, I did it. You wrestle, you're punching each other in the junk. You're sleeping in a tent in the living room. Like, all right, now let me try. Ha ha ha. And you're like, what's going on? <laughs> A sleepover <laughs> with five-year-old boys is gayer than Rufus Wainwright and Richard Simmons having sex on top of the gay pride flag. It's unbelievable. And look, I'm all gay. Like, I, all my chips for gay rights. It's human rights. It's absurd. And... I got, sure, you know, we like humans. We were in the comic book store a little too late. You guys hesitant, like, oh yeah, that's us, sorry. This centaur cyborg world I created in my head. I have to teach my boys about the birds and the bees, and everybody's different. You know, parents, they'll go like, when's the right age for the birds and the bees? Everybody's different. My wife uber sexual at four years old asked her mom how it works her mom told her a four-year-old nicole avery cox said to her uh, mom does it feel good <laughs> four years old like do you sit on daddy's lap like you total like how does this work when does it start is there a height thing do i have to be this tall me, public school in New Jersey, I didn't need to know anything because everybody knew you got pregnant by peeing in each other's butts. That's how we knew. That's, we knew. Like, all right, you can put it in there, but don't pee, I don't want to get pregnant. These are two boys talking to each other. Half slice. These are two boys taught, just don't pee in my butt, I don't want to get pregnant. I was gay when I was seven. I gave it a good run. Like, I tried hard. Like, I don't... It's amazing it didn't take. Because I gave it a good, long, stiff run. Eddie Collins. See, I just got like... See, like, my stomach? I just got like a... Oh. 
Summer of Love, 1977. <laughs> I remember it so well. None of this is made up. This is all true. I don't have any bits or shtick. If you ever come see my stand-up, we'll, we'll break it down just like this. I'm telling you. Eddie Collins asked me in his clubhouse behind his house, do you know what a blowjob is, JJ? And I go, yeah, but I didn't. I thought a blowjob, this is the truth, was when you blow on a vagina. Like, a, like if she was nice enough, just like putting out a candle. That's, but we also thought you peed in butts to make babies. So I'm like, yeah. And I, he goes, what is it? And I told him, he goes, that's not what it is. And then he showed me with his mouth what it was. Amazing. Like the greatest feeling in the world. Like, th I mean, I'm like, it felt good. I don't give a shit. That was a, I, imagine how much you enjoy guys uh, and trannies, I guess if you're here, uh, why cut anybody out? How much you like a blowjob. Now imagine that same feeling before you know your times tables. <laughs> like you're still kind of working with primary colors and then boom. Wow. You talk about killing an ant with a shotgun. Just like, holy shit. I still like the felt on my blanket. This is fucking crazy. And I liked it so much that I would do it to him. And I didn't like doing it to him. It tasted like pennies. Like if you hold pennies in your hand, there's the whiff of Clorox that I still can't figure out. But I go back to the well. But I like getting it so much, I let him do it to me. That I, let, I did it to him. I had to get it back. Like I had to let him just, we did it all summer. <laughs> like he called my house and goes, JJ home. We're like, you know, the back door knocks. And I'm like, oh, I hope that's Eddie Collins. <laughs> and he'd be like, you want to come over? I'm like, I guess. I had to play it cool in front of the folks. Like, I guess, whatever. <laughs> And we just go to the clubhouse and we would, we would blow each other. <laughs> like totally, I'm completely straight, but like that, it, for three months, all I did, I had Eddie Collins' little like pacifier dick in my mouth. Cause we were seven, like nothing came out. We were kids, but I mean, that's all we did. Like we didn't play video games. We didn't read. We didn't go to the community pool. Just sucking little dick after little dick. Like this little blow bang. Just one, like, ah, like again, again. Cause you don't ejaculate, so it never ends. Cause you don't come, you're like, again, 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 again. And it felt good. And I'm not ashamed of that. A lot of you were a lot more uncomfortable than I am. I gave it up. I, here's my point. Don't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> Eddie Collins. I'm from New Jersey. Eddie Collins is the chief of police. <laughs> Life works in weird ways. It's like governor, lieutenant governor, Eddie Collins. <laughs> I drive as fast as I want through New Jersey. <laughs> I 
I don't put my headlights on at night. I got three wheels on a stolen BMW. I got a family of Haitians in the trunk, bound and gagged, duct tape, flex cuffed, rolling joints, steering with my knee. I don't give a fuck. What are they gonna pull me over? Some bullshit patrolman? Get Chief Collins on the radio, asshole. And then Chief Collins goes, well, what's his name? And the guy goes, Jay Moore. He goes, let him go. Don't at, he works for us. Get, just give him your gun and your badge. Drop him off in Manhattan. And give him my cell phone number. Tell him to type in hashtag 77. It's not who you know, it's who you blow after all. That's, here we are in Hollywood. That's a lesson I need you to take home with you. Thank you, you're an amazing host. I love you, I mean it. Thank you very much, everybody. July 22nd of 2002 and I was driving down Interstate 70 in Missouri which runs straight as a ruler all the way from Denver to way past St. Louis and where I was trying to go was St. Louis because more than anything I needed to get to the airport and I was buzzing past billboards and I was buzzing past cars and in the cars there were these families and in the in the families there was everybody there was there were moms and dads and kids and nobody was dead I was ripping down the highway I was going 85 I was going 90 I was going 95 and I just I wanted a cop to pull me over so that I could get out and scream at the cop and somehow get this out of me because my mom called that morning. But the story doesn't start there. Two weeks earlier, I had been in a hotel room with a colleague, and we were just talking, and my cell phone rang, and it was my big sister. And she said, Janine, have you heard from Amy? And right then, I knew, and I started shaking my head, and I realized that I hadn't talked to Amy. And that normally, I talk to Amy all the time. Three times a week, four times a week, I'd call her and I'd go, you know the movie that was like a class reunion after the guy committed suicide and there was a guy in that who sold tennis shoes? Who was that played by? And she goes, oh, that was Kevin Klein." I mean, she knew everything. When people at work were driving her crazy or when my kids were driving me crazy, she was the one I picked the phone up for. And I realized that it had been days since I had talked to my baby sister. And into the phone I said, he killed her. And my friend starts shaking his head and my sister's really quiet and then she said, I know, but we can't think that yet. And I understood why we couldn't think that yet because if we thought it, maybe it would be true. The reason 
we thought it, and it gives me goosebumps even to talk about it now, is that nine months earlier, my sister, who had been 37 years old, going back to grad school, had just lost 85 pounds, had bought her own condo for the first time, had met this guy online, and she fell in love, and he was her cowboy. And in the pictures, he's wearing a cowboy hat and a big rodeo belt buckle, and he's got this big gold cross on a chain around his neck. She would tell me stories. He leaves me love notes, she said, and he makes my meals for me, and he uses my Weight Watcher rules. But he wasn't working. And so she was supporting both of them, and he was living in her home. But all this, you know, I knew this. I'd heard dribs and drabs and pieces of this. But at the time, I was really wrapped up with getting out of my own marriage. I had left my husband two months prior, and it was a marriage where if I looked at another man, I'd be up all night with that finger jabbing me in the chest, insisting that I wanted this other man, that I was flirting with this other man. I would go to the grocery store and Little League practice and pretty much nowhere else. But I didn't tell Amy that. So now, Amy's missing, and we start making these phone calls, and we call her friends. We've got, she's got a friend who's a Buddhist monk, and we call the monastery. We call everywhere. And then we start hoping that maybe she's just been in a horrible car accident, you know, and she just has amnesia, or she's in a coma somewhere. And when you are hoping that, that's horrible. And then they found, her co-workers found a note in her desk drawer. And that note said, If I am missing or dead, pick up Ron Ball. And Ron Ball was her live-in boyfriend. One of the sad things about that envelope is that it was dated 10 weeks earlier. So for 10 weeks she had been afraid and for 10 weeks, we'd talked about movies and the weather. And eight weeks before, I had left my husband. And I am sure I monopolized our conversations. And that feeling of, it's just like being the survivor of someone who succeeds at suicide. What did I miss? What didn't I ask? Was I too selfish? You know, why didn't she tell me? And, you know, in my case, I kept thinking it's because I kept talking. And I also kept making my facade shiny, which didn't allow her to tell the truth. And so, you know, I didn't tell the truth, so she couldn't tell the truth. And then they found her car. And in her car were beer cans. But the fingerprints on the beer cans were all the boyfriends because my sister didn't drink beer. She said that uh, she preferred to get her calories through chocolate. And there were newspapers with a recent date on them but my sister didn't read the paper. So helicopters went up, search dogs went out, the big Cyclops TV cameras followed us everywhere we went. They were parked outside our hotels. We had two rooms and the news was on in this room on one channel and that room on the other channel and we would run back and forth trying to see if there was anything. My sister's employer let out a bunch of employees and they pasted uh, flyers up all down the main street of the town strobing in the side of your vision it was have you seen Amy have you seen Amy have you seen Amy and I remember one day when my mom had to push open the door at the deli 
and push her own daughter's face taped to the glass away so that she could just go in and order a sandwich. My mom and dad and the rest of us would get smuggled into the back of the sheriff's offices so that the media couldn't question us, so that they couldn't come to my mom and ask her questions. I remember us having this huge press conference and there were these collages of photos of Amy and my mom looked into all those cameras, all of us standing beside her and said, please help me find my baby. Eventually though, we had to go home. I had a three-year-old at home, I had a house, I had a job, and we all went home. But those detectives are saints. They stuck on this case ridiculously long. They just kept going after this guy and kept going after him. He, he escaped to his family's home in Tuscaloosa, which is out of district, and the detectives took time off work and away from their family so that they could just stake out the place. But the day I'm talking about, the day I'm telling you a story about, was July 22nd. And mom called, and she said, they found Amy. And I knew that they hadn't found my baby sister. They hadn't found the one with the stupid jokes and the huge laugh and the one who brought so many beads back from Mardi Gras that when we put them all on my daughter, you couldn't even see her face anymore. All they had found was her body wrapped in a painter's tarp and tied with speaker's wire and buried at a construction site. On the 4th of July, 2002, I called my baby sister and I said, hey, what are you doing? And we talked about nothing. And she told me that she was baking bread for her sweetheart and he was gonna be home later. And I asked her if they were going to go to the fireworks. And she said, no, we'll make our own fireworks. And when we got off the phone, I said to her, I love you, Amy. And that's the last time I ever spoke to her. My baby's sister was strangled during the fireworks on the 4th of July. When Jane called and said Amy was missing, there was this gut feeling because suddenly it was like tumblers falling into place. The things Amy had told me, like, he has priors, but don't worry, they're just money things. He's never hurt anybody. When the sisters all got together and shared stories, it turns out that Amy had bought him a pickup truck after he had crashed his own because he was driving drunk. She had bought him a utility trailer, sprayers, ladders, everything it would take to put him into business as a house painter. And when she died, she was a secretary, and when she died, she had $60,000 in debt for things for him. But she was vulnerable because in our culture, if you're obese, you don't think you are, have as many options as far as partners go. And only after she had lost this incredible amount of weight did she even think she deserved anybody. And this guy was very, very... You know, this idea, let's set the alarm for a half an hour early so that we can lie in bed and cuddle before work. And the love notes. And she had bought him a big screen TV and then put speakers in the back for surround sound. But being my sister, she hadn't installed the, the cables, the speaker wire. So it was just lying across the baseboard 
And that's what he used to tie her up in the painter's tarp. So I drove to the airport, screaming past FedEx trucks, past semis. I pick up my phone, I call my friends, and I say, I am going to identify and claim my sister's body. And they take the call, and I'm crying, and I call, and I call, and I call. I am going to identify and claim my sister's body. Finally, I called my friend Russ, and Russ said, Say goodbye, Amy. And I said, No. And he said, Say goodbye, Amy. You're going to have to say it. And you can say it with a friend, or you can say it alone. So say goodbye, Amy. And I said, fuck you. And he said, no, you've got to say it. And I drove for a while longer, and finally I just whispered it. I just whispered it. I just said, goodbye, Amy. And he said, say it again. Goodbye, Amy. And then I was just bawling, and I could barely see. But I kept driving anyway. Years later, I wrote this book, and one of the people who contacted me was his daughter from his prior marriage. And she wrote, my daddy is a good man. He used to carry me on his shoulders. Yes, he has a drinking problem, but he never hurt my mom or me. He just left when I was little. About two days later, I got another email, and it was from this girl's mother, Ron Ball's first wife. And she said, my daughter doesn't remember, but I picked her up and ran when she was a little girl. And if I had pressed charges, maybe your sister would be alive. All I could say to her was that no, the way sentencing worked, he would have been out, and no, she cannot carry that guilt. But man, I wish we had all told our stories.
That is Patty Griffin behind me now. And we just heard from Janine Latis. Her book, If I Am Missing or Dead, is a sort of a memoir that is a much longer, more fleshed out version of the same events that are described in that story we just heard. It's always an honor to have someone like Janine share something so, so loaded. We like to think that this show is a safe space for sharing anything. And you can too, whether your story is funny or tragic, anywhere on the emotional spectrum, go to risk-show.com slash submissions for guidelines on how to share your stories with us. Last up today, we have the great Ed Gavigan. Ed is one of everyone's favorite storytellers in the New York scene. He has a series of stories about a series of incidents he lived through a while back. He's done a lot of them on The Moth. This one is a slightly different version than you might have heard before. A slightly different chunk of the story. And we were thrilled to have him share it with us at the Risk Live show at The Pit in New York City just a little while ago. So without further ado, here he is now, Mr. Ed Gavigan, with a story we call Whatever Doesn't Kill Me. So we wake up in the morning, we get dressed, we put our shoes on, we head out into the world, pretty sure we're going to come back at night, get undressed, take our shoes off, go to bed, and we plan on getting up the next day and doing the same thing. And we hope, we plan, that becomes this framework, kind of a... Um, it helps us uh, in our life. And we make our plans based on the idea that we're going to be able to come home and continue to do what we've been doing. And John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. And I woke up one morning. I wasn't wearing any of my own clothes. I had a tube up my nose going down into my stomach to drain it. I had a tube uh, coming out of each side to drain each lung had a morphine drip and a catheter and a um, life support machine beeping next to me. At the foot of my bed was a surgeon who had worked on me all night to save my life, and next to him were two homicide detectives. Now, for the record, when your day starts out with two homicide detectives telling you what happened to you last night, it's going to be downhill from there. It turns out that... There's a gang in Brooklyn that had, as part of an initiation, three guys came into the village, and to move up into the upper echelon of the gang, uh, these guys had to kill somebody that night. So they sat waiting on uh, Thompson Street for a guy to come around the corner. They had a lookout at either end of the block. Lookouts gave the go-ahead. It was uh, the night before Thanksgiving, so the streets were very deserted. And this guy is walking down the block. He gets his keys out of his pocket. These three guys are coming towards him. Puts the keys into the lobby of his building. 
the lobby door. He goes in, the door closes behind him, he pushes the elevator button, and these guys are locked out. He gets in the elevator, goes up to his apartment, takes his clothes off, goes to bed, has no idea what just didn't hit him. I'm the next guy. So I'm walking down the block, I don't have, I don't live there. And these kids jump on me, and there's three, they have their knives, they're out, they're up their arm like that. I had no, did not see it coming, there were no words exchanged. They just pounced on me and began to stab me. Took one in the neck, uh, the other one went up uh, my side, cut my heart, <clears throat> both lungs were collapsed. Now, I grew up in Wyoming, learned how to fight. Then I went to school at uh, Notre Dame. I was on the boxing team, which is one of the th very lucky things that saved my life that night is I got one very good straight right punch and knocked the middle guy out. And then I started to scream and ran down the block. And the police caught the middle guy because everyone else ran and left him. They couldn't carry him. And then they told him that he was going to get the electric chair if he didn't give everyone up. Uh, he gave up all the names. And so these two homicide detectives had uh, mug shots. And the surgeon had told them that I had about a 2% chance of living through the day. And they wanted me to identify these guys before I died. Now, nobody told me that I only had a 2% chance. And um, I didn't really understand why these guys were bugging me to identify these people. And I, I felt very bad. And I didn't, I, too queasy. And I just said, I can't really put anything together from last night, and I don't want to make a wrong identification, so, um, you know, uh, you'll have to do something else with fingerprints or something, because I, I don't feel good making this identification. And um, so I spent the next three or four days on life support, and um, I, I beat the odds. And uh, I come off life support, and I go into the intensive care unit, and the little nurse comes in, and she's got the clipboard, and she says, I'd like to talk to you about your insurance. And I was self-employed at the time, so I like to say I was insurance-free. And um, she uh, was dismayed to learn that. And the next morning, they came in and told me, um, man, you are looking really good. We think you should um, get better at home. And they pulled all the tubes out, and they gave me a little jar of Percocet and a cane, and I ended up uh, at home. Now, I had... A few hundred stitches from surgery. I had uh, multiple stab wounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't lay on my back. I couldn't lay on my side. I couldn't lay on my stomach. And every time I started to doze off, the movie would start, and I just was just engulfed in terror. So the days and the weeks went by without, uh, you know, my stitches came out, but I just was not getting very much better. And, you know, in New York, if you can't go to your job and uh, pay your rent, you don't get to stay in your apartment. So <clears throat> I was getting calls from the district attorney's office to help him but with this case. I have now five guys to go to jail for uh, attempted murder. And I would go down to visit him, and it would be a very emotional time for me because I didn't like to walk outside. And yet... Then there were moments like I'd be walking past the deli and I would see all the flowers and the buckets and it would, it would be like uh, out of a Disney movie where all the flowers would start to sing and I was so happy to be alive. And I was just like, I would feel things and, and hear sounds and watch just details, everything. I was just picking it all up like I'd just gotten a fresh start at everything. 
And yet, the rest of my life was just shit. And I would just alternate between this, like, these intense moments where, like, the essence of existence was just erupting around me. And then I would just be crying because I would see two Puerto Rican kids and any kid that looked like he had a hint of menace, which they all do. Every kid, every teenager is like projecting menace. And I would, I would lose it. And, and the feeling was like, you know, if you're driving late at night on a, on a road and it's uh, snowing and the road's icy and there's, it's late, you're going a little fast, you're coming into a turn and you feel all the wheels start to slip. And you look, you see the guardrail and you're like, there's nothing I can do brake steering I, I, I'm, I'm gonna hit and then you hit the dry pavement and the car shutters and you have control again and you keep going and then you feel it the taste in your mouth and behind your knees I would get that feeling eight and ten times a day when I left my apartment and I was just unraveling coming apart and I end up getting evicted I come home and the marshals have put um, all of my possessions on the sidewalk and the homeless guys are picking through and I, I got nothing. I have nowhere to go. And uh, I have a, a, an appointment with the district attorney. So I go to him and I just break down. I start to cry and I'm like, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to have any phone anymore. Um, uh, and he says, well, let me give you the number for victim's assistance. A little late, I thought. Um, <laughs> And so I take the number and I go to the victim's assistance office, just walked there, and uh, there, I'm waiting. I don't have an appointment or anything. I just figure I'll wait till somebody talks to me. And this very nice young girl comes out. Like, she looked just like uh, Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. She's got the ponytail and the black turtleneck and the clipboard. And I'm in a very dark place. And I see her and I feel like we're not going to connect. And she takes me back to her cubicle, and then I know we're not going to connect, because on the wall next to her monitor is the poster, I know you know it, of the kitten and the branch. It says, hang in there, baby. <laughs> and so I just sit there kind of looking at her, and she gives me a list of places that I can go for um, free group counseling in the Bronx, and she puts me on a list for subsidized housing, which will possibly in 18 months, uh, you know, give me something. And then I can fill out Medicaid, and she gives me this middle envelope full of all these forms, and I feel like I'm a drowning man who has just been thrown a kit to build a boat. And I walk out of there with all this paperwork, and I go to see this bartender that I knew, this very cute um, Lebanese-Canadian poet bartender. She's rocking this Simone de Beauvoir look, and she's just super smart and funny, and she listens. And I just uh, say I'm, I'm homeless, you know, and uh, so she lets me stay on her couch. And the, the thing about her that was just incredible was that she listened. And I found that when I tried to talk to people about this turmoil in my head and, and how my life was, was just unraveling, people generally had one of three responses. Um, the first response was, everything happens for a reason. And that made me want to stab them six times and see if they knew what the reason for that was. <laughs> and the next thing that people said was, you've just got to pull yourself together and put that behind you. You're, gonna, you're, you're fine now. Just move on. Like, you can't dwell on the past. And I just wanted to punch them in the face and just keep punching them and, and just say, 
So are, are you able to just, you know, move on? Like, I, I really could use some advice from somebody who knows what they're talking about, not somebody just dishing out these platitudes. And then the next thing that people said, and again, everyone, they meant well. They just had no fucking idea what to say. And instead of saying nothing and listening, they said, um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the problem with that for me was that I actually did not believe that. I mean, I went to college, you know, I sat up all night in the student union um, drinking coffee. Uh, I read Nietzsche. I just had this feeling that things could happen in your life that would break you, that you would not recover from, that, that not only would you not be stronger, that I was never going to have what I had. My, my health was shot, my business was gone, my, my apartment, like I had nothing. And, and not, not only would I never even be stronger, I just wouldn't even have ever again what I had. And so I'm, you know, this is making me sad and, and then kind of mad because it just seems like nothing is working out. And I would take my little bag of tools that I had. I, uh, before I got hurt, I had this small furniture shop in Dumbo. I had built uh, custom furniture. So I still had a bag of chisels and I would go up to the Upper East Side with my screw gun and my, my chisels and you know if you're um, you have your own tools and English is your first language and you knock on the door of a construction site pretty much uh, you can have a job for the day and I knew what I was doing and so pretty soon they'd say like you know put him down in the basement on the baseboard and see how he's going and then you know, I'm working on some millionaire's townhouse, uh, you know, with just incredible stuff going on, marble and, and rosewood everywhere, and I'm in this library, and I'm, you know, morticing an offset pivot hinge into this uh, inlaid door. And the thought of, like, this beauty and this, like, craftsmanship and what these people are going to be able to live in, and, like, the just the beauty of, of what we were creating in, uh, on the job site contrasted with my life and then like the evil that had happened to me and I just started to cry. So there I'm, I'm on my hands and knees crying and you know one of the Mexican laborers is like goes to the foreman he's like that dude you hired man he's crying in the basement. <laughs> so the you know the foreman's this Irish guy and he comes down and he's like you know Eddie here you can't use you anymore today here's go have a drink man and you know paid me through the day and I just go and I'm sitting on a bench near Central Park and I'm just feeling like you know my girlfriend's worried about me because I've gone from being the sad guy to being the mad guy and I'm like verging on being this bad guy because I just am so dark all the time and I see this dude go walking by with his shiny briefcase and his shiny shoes and his perfect suit and his silk tie knotted and his hair's all shined and combed and perfect and I just think I'm gonna tackle that fucker and kneel on his chest and just punch him in the face and make him hurt and just say to him you think that you're where you are because you're good, but you're not. You're just, you're, you're where you are because you're lucky, man. A car could jump the curb. Some fuckers could stab you at night. Like, you are lucky. You're not good. You didn't get where you are because you're so fucking smart or talented. Just, you didn't get hit. 
That's why you're here. And I want you to remember that. And I just wanted to hit this guy so bad. And I'm thinking, better not do that. And I let him, I let him keep walking. And then, I, and then what hits me is, I just wanted to hurt a perfect stranger to make a point about what's wrong with my life. And in that moment, I realized I have just become closer to the guys who stabbed me than I am to who I was before I was hurt. And I see there's this path for me where I'll join those guys on the road to fucking hell. I'll be alone, I'll be in prison, I'll do whatever I wanna do, and I'll end up like them. And I don't wanna do that. I have enough wherewithal to not wanna do that. And the next thing that occurs to me is that I can't ever have what I had before. It's gone. That guy, I can't, I can't get back to that. I'm different. I'm fundamentally and totally changed. And I need, to, I need to do something that I've never done before. And then I think, I've got this girl, and she's like, I'll, I'll just go tell her. Like, I'm going to be different now. I, I, I put all this other crap aside. I'm going to start again. I'm going to have this, like, energy and I'm totally psyched and I go running home to her and I'm like I'm gonna be different things are gonna be great will you marry me and she's like no <laughs> and so she um, but she's enthused by my enthusiasm and she gives me you know she waits and so we we, we try and work it out and a couple of years goes by and um, she knows I'm never gonna ask her again so she asks me and I agree and then a little more time goes by and we, we kind of get a, a routine back and I get a better job and start doing things again and, and kind of put the world back into some kind of perspective where I don't really trust the world again, but at least I have it at arm's length and we decide we can have a kid. So I have a... a uh, four-year-old daughter now so I put her shoes on in the morning and I head out to work
that is all for this fifth Best of Risk episode. This is Cloud Cult behind me now, and we just heard from Ed Gavigan. Well, folks, if you're new to the podcast, or for that matter, if you've been around with us for a while now, please spread the word. Let people know where to find us. We're at risk-show.com. We're free, of course, on iTunes. The classic episodes of Risk from the first season are in the album section of iTunes. They are 99 cents each. Our all-star episodes are also there for just $2.99. All of that is not to be missed. So spread the word far and wide. There is a lot of Risk to be had. There's a hell of a lot of live risk shows to be seen this month. In fact, on Tuesday, February 25th, the last of this very special series of shows we've been doing in Los Angeles to benefit our school, the Story Studio, will be happening with Michael Showalter of The State and Stella and Wet Hot American Summer. Also, there will be Big Black Car, legendary improv troupe, with uh, Kristen Schaal of The Daily Show and Matt Oberg of Ugly Americans, Ellie Kemper of The Office, also Kieran Deal, Beowulf Jones, and John Flynn. Then on February 27th, we're in New York with Melina Williams and Elna Baker. On that same night, the 27th, we're in Los Angeles with Jay Moore again and Cameron Esposito and Dave Ross. Finally, on March 8th, we are in San Diego. And on March 29th, we're in Reno. So go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out about tickets and where we are coming next. Don't forget that we teach storytelling as well for business people, for performers, For people just seeking storytelling for personal growth, you can learn more at thestorystudio.org. And of course, Risk is a Maximum Fun podcast. We are a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network, and we're listener-supported. We cannot keep this going without the help of those who love the show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate, and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Nothing is inappropriate for risk until something probably is. Uh, one of the very first people to ever do the show, he said to me, Kevin, would it be inappropriate if I told a story like that? Like starting the theme in the middle of the hosting is not inappropriate. 